If you're interested in money-making opportunities in natural resources, you might consider attending Rules Symposium on Natural Resource Investing, which is a gathering of industry leaders and macro thinkers in Boca Raton, Florida, from July 26th to July 29th. Robert Friedland will be there, Daniel DiMartino Booth will be there, as will Grant Williams, co-founder of Real Vision, and of course, Rick Rule himself. To get your ticket, click on the link in the description. It really helps the show if you click that special link. Thank you, and let's get into the interview. I am joined by a man who has been in the investment world for a long time, has made his mark in the natural uh, resource investing world. That is Rick Rule. Uh, up until recently, Rick was the CEO of Sprott, which is a natural resource asset manager, manages over $20 billion. Uh, he is now the founder and CEO of Rule Investment Media. Rick, it's an honor to have you on Forward Guidance. A pleasure. Thank you for having me back. Rick, you've seen a lot of commodity cycles in your storied career. Can you just, how does the past two years uh, shake out for you? We've had incredible uh, supply constraints. Oil has gone from you know negative, what, $38 a barrel to over 100, well over oil, uh, $100 barrel. Uh, are there periods in history that you think, oh, you know, I, I've sort of seen this movie before, or is this something completely new, even for you? They say that uh, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And I think that that's accurate. I think in a very broad sense that we are coming off a couple of decades of underinvestment in natural resources. Uh, and the consequence of that is that shortages have begun to, to appear and will continue to appear. Uh, we tend to forget that there's almost 8 billion of us on Earth. <laughs> and everything material that isn't grown must be mined. And as the population of the world grows and as the affluence of the world grows, the requirement for mined commodities grows and the impacts of two or three decades of underinvestment begin to appear. The supply side was exacerbated, uh, I think, by COVID-19, which did two things. It uh, eliminated for a little while demand which is to say that commodity prices absolutely plummeted, even in the face of impending shortages. Uh, it also uh, constrained supply lines, uh, either as a consequence of, as an example, not being able to mine underground because of COVID-19, or uh, in the case of oil, uh, with constraints on demand around air travel. So, you know, the most dramatic commodity rise I've seen, price rise I've seen in my career has been the last two years in oil from briefly sub-zero to $130 a barrel. This really, truly is unheralded. Uh, predictable, completely predictable, but unheralded. I think the opportunity in front of us is interesting too. I think it's interesting particularly because uh, the investment community uh, worldwide is still substantially underinvested in natural resources. So that natural resource stocks are out of favor at the same time that we see almost inevitable uh, supply shocks. The only way the supply shocks, interestingly, I think can be alleviated is through worldwide recession or depression. And in that sense, you don't alleviate the supply shortage, you just postpone it. 
So I would say if you're a patient investor, if you're a patient, uh, an investor who can stand volatility, and in particular, if you're an investor who can stomach political risk, uh, the next five years may be the best time that we have ever seen to be a natural resource investor. The caveat to that is, of course, that uh, suggests that we are able, which we may or may not be able to do, to avoid uh, a global synchronized recession or depression. And what is your outlook on the possibility of a globalized synchronized recession or depression? Jack, I joke, uh, you know, I'm always cautious. I'm, I'm a credit analyst by background, which means I'm always dubious. I'm always a, a skeptic. I joke about myself that I've I've correctly uh, I've correctly called seventeen of the last three declines, uh, and so my outlook is always cautious. Uh, I've learned too, however, that in in my life those declines have been big opportunities. Uh, I'm a hopeless optimist in the longer term, uh, which means that despite the fact that my outlook is perhaps fairly gloomy in the near term, uh, I look at what I see as an impending economic slowdown uh, as an opportunity. Many people don't see them that way. Uh, you know, Buffett famously said he needs his fortune by being brave when others were afraid and afraid when others are brave. Uh, most people don't view it that way. Most people are afraid when they're afraid <laughs> and they're brave when they're brave, which is why most people underperform Buffett. Yes, and the price of commodities is often very linked to economic growth. So in 2021 and late 2020, the commodity bull market you know, went alongside a reflation where growth and inflation were, were very buoyant. Likewise, now, you know, over the, very recently, over the past month, over, over a matter of few weeks, we've seen uh, commodity price declines that were quite sharp, you know, uh, copper falling something like 20%, uh, you know, oil, I think, down something like eight or nine percent today is how do you uh, think about the relationship between the fallen commodities that we've seen recently and the potential chance of a recession? Is it sort of hinting at a recession, or is it just a, sort of a minor blip that you think in the longer term will create opportunity? I think a lot of it will have to do in the near term with any outcome that might occur in the war in Ukraine. Uh, I think six months ago. People thought that the um, flow of material out of Russia would stop as a consequence of the war, but it forgot to stop. Uh, people overestimated the near-term impact of political constraints, which didn't become economic constraints. Uh, as an example, people priced in to the oil price uh, up to $130, the impact of Russian oil not flowing, but Russian oil flowed. In the nickel price, uh, the platinum price, the palladium price, the market uh, priced in the impact of a hiatus uh, of supplies of these commodities from Norilsk, but that hiatus, at least thus far, hasn't occurred yet. So what you're seeing now, I think, is markets backing off from uh, hysteria-engendered uh, price increases. If the Western response to the war is that these threatened cutoffs become real cutoffs, which is to say if there's a real hiatus in the flow of Russian oil and gas, even just to Europe, uh, never mind cutting off uh, Chinese or Japanese supplies, uh, if there's a hiatus in the shipments of agricultural metals, in particular potash, 
then I think you're going to see a very different commodity price. I'm not smart enough to tell you what either the tactical or the political outcome uh, of the tensions in the Ukraine are. But I think in the near term, commodity markets are probably more sensitive to that than anything else. In the longer term, I think maybe you are seeing the markets anticipate the possibility or even the probability of a recession around higher interest rates. Uh, you know, we have seen uh, central banks around the world, but particularly in the U.S., be fairly aggressive with regards to allowing interest rates to rise. And there's a lot of concern among many commentators, myself included, uh, about the impact that that might have on an economy that has grown, uh, I would suggest, primarily as a consequence of uh, artificial liquidity and artificially low interest rates. And one wonders if you had a reversion to mean in terms of interest rates, how the economy would react. I would suggest that we have uh, some prologue uh, in 1982 and 1983 to look at. Uh, and if you look at that as prologue, it's not pretty. <laughs> it solves the problem and it solves the problem in two or three years. But those two or three years are pretty bloody. I'm not trying to say, by the way, that the current Fed has the courage of Paul Volcker. I'm not trying to say that you're going to see uh, positive real interest rates, which is to say, as an example, a 12% yield on the US 10-year Treasury. What I'm trying to say is that to the extent that the Fed uh, actually does engage in a reduction in quantitative easing, I think that the impact on the economy could be uh, quite severe. I don't know that we'll see that. Uh, but it would be interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Fed funds at 9% certainly would be interesting. So the uh, Fed cannot really affect the supply situation really at all. You know, Fed Chair Jay Powell has said as much. The way that the, the Federal Reserve will resolve supply-demand imbalances is by destroying demand. But that uh, assumes that demand is a, a relevant or a, a, a primary driver in the price of commodities. You know, in your, uh, over the course of your career, what have you seen? Which is a more powerful driver of price, supply or demand? Of course, it's both. But if you had to pick one, which would you pick? Supply. Uh, supply disruptions uh, really, really, really impact price a lot. Remember that um, prices are set on the margin between supply and demand. Uh, and uh, a 1% or 2% uh, increase in supply over demand can have an impact. But supply shocks uh, are important. One comes to understand the utility of resources when one looks at the near-term inelasticity of demand around price. Uh, people tend to derive almost as much with oil at $130 a barrel as they did with oil at $60 a barrel which is to say the, the real personal utility around personal transportation is very high relative to the cost. Similarly, if you look at special materials, uh, an example might be platinum or palladium. It probably takes $150 worth of palladium to build the catalytic converter that enables the sale of a $60,000 or $70,000 car. If the price of palladium were to double, it wouldn't change the price of the car for sale on the on the car lot. 
The consequence of that is that at least in the near term, demand is much less uh, elastic than you uh, would suspect, and supply shocks have outsized impacts on prices. Further down the road, of course, uh, prices matter a lot. Very high sustained prices do two things. They, over the course of a decade, increase supply. At the same time, they encourage conservation and better fabrication practices. But in the near term, uh, it's really supply that dictates price. And one saying is that uh, the cure for high prices is high prices. That is, if the price of of copper goes to $20,000, the copper miners are going to do everything they possibly can to get every single ounce of copper out of the ground that, that, that they, you know, possible. To what degree does that, uh, does that hold uh, over the, let's say, midterm, let's say six to 18 months? Because if if that rule always held, right, you would never have a commodity super cycle like, you know, from 2000 to, to 2007. In our business, six to nine months is the short term. <laughs> Investor <laughs> perceptions are such that it's an eternity. Uh, but the truth is that these are capital intensive cyclical businesses. So let's say as an example that we forgot to have a recession. Uh, and let's say that demand for copper, both in terms of electric vehicles, but more importantly, in terms of global electrification for the poorest of the poor continued. Um, I would suggest that the incentive price for new copper mines, the price that copper needs to achieve to bring new mines into production is probably between four and a half and five dollars a pound. It doesn't mean that existing mines don't do fine at $3, but it means to bring on new production, which we need, we need much higher prices. So let's say for fun that the copper price went to $8 a pound, seven and a half or $8 a pound. The response in the market is not instantaneous. Uh, it, it takes, in many cases, a decade of high prices to increase supply. You have to find the deposit. You have to permit the deposit. You have to finance the deposit. You have to build the deposit. One example would be the resolution copper deposit in the United States, in Arizona. It's in copper country. You know, it has every possible infrastructure advantage associated with it. It was discovered 25 years ago. It's a world scale deposit, over a billion tons at over uh, 1.5% copper grade in a world where the median grade is half a percent. So it's three times the average grade worldwide. And it's been in the permitting process for 20 years with no end in sight. Uh, the point of this isn't to make fun of American politics, but rather to suggest that in capital-intensive cyclical businesses, markets work, but they work in the very, very long term. And and uh, sticking in the world of oil and perhaps natural gas too, are you seeing predict, uh, production start to ramp up? And if you aren't, uh, you know why? Because the the price of oil was you know up until recently something around one hundred and twenty dollars, where you know, it must be pretty pre pretty profitable to put on uh, new production there, right? We will be lucky to maintain supply in the near term. Uh, lucky for perhaps three reasons. The first is that the uh, COVID-inspired downturn in oil prices cost the oil industry dearly, uh, both in terms of free cash flow, which disappeared, 
but also in terms of investor sentiment, which is to say that oil share prices fell, raising the cost of equity, and debt became much less available. Uh, in fact, the the uh, junk bond market for energy disappeared. Uh, the consequence of that was that the oil industry spent perhaps two years uh, deferring new project and sustaining capital investments of about $3 billion a day, which is to say that well over a trillion dollars worth of sustaining capital investments weren't made. In a business where every day your basic business depletes, maintaining supply requires constant effort with regards to sustaining capital investment. So we're behind the eight ball. We're trying to make up for the deficit now. The second thing is that the big thinkers of the world, uh, the Joe Bidens, the Justin Trudeaus, uh, that noted energy physicist Greta Thornburg, uh, people like that have said to the oil industry, you will cease to exist in 2030 or 2035 you will have a trillion dollars in stranded capital. Uh, and while they have said that, some of the biggest lending institutions in the world have begun to sell sanction, which is to say, despite the fact that the oil business is extremely profitable now, the cost of capital is extremely high. So even today, uh, with operating margins above 50%, uh, as generous as I've ever seen them in my career, the industry is believed to be uh, underinvesting in sustaining capital investments and new project investments to the extent of about a billion dollars a day. Uh, in other words, this year, we as an industry will have underinvested $365 billion. It's worthwhile to note that the big thinkers in the United States, be they the California governor, uh, Gruesome, I think is his name, uh, uh, or Biden uh, are suggesting politically to the voters that they're doing everything that they can to lower prices at the pump at the same time that they cancel access to drilling inventory for the oil industry. They caution the insurance industry not to insure oil and gas operations, and they tell the industry that it's a sunset industry. Uh, if you, if the legislative body that governs an industry says we are going to outlaw you in 10 years, it isn't an environment that's conducive to spending a billion dollars a day to build inventory that you believe that the government will steal. And that CapEx that wasn't happening in 2020, that wasn't reducing the supply of oil in 2020. It's reducing the supply of oil now, now reducing the supply correct. of oil in 2024. That's right? correct. It, it pays forward. That's correct. And, and you know, you uh, are an investor in a lot of these companies. I'm sure you talk to the CEOs frequently. How do these uh, people who work at these oil companies, how do they react to the current environment when both government as well as shareholders? I mean, it's not as yeah. if, you know, sh shareholders themselves, they ask for capital discipline themselves. They want pay down debt. They want uh, dividends. They don't want uh, an increase in production, which would mean they have to front up more money. How, at what point do you think it would ever what would have to happen for oil companies to really invest in production like they were in during the 2000s, let's say? Well, I think investors, first of all, need to segregate uh, between those companies that are returning unsustainable amounts of capital to shareholders uh, and those companies which are rewarding shareholders at the same time as they're investing in the future. 
you have companies like Exxon, uh, despite Mr. Biden's continual bullying, that have invested twice free cash flow in sustaining capital uh, investments and new project investments. In fact, they have done exactly what Mr. Biden has pretended to ask them to do. Uh, but that has been the exception, not the norm. Mostly, if you pay attention to incentives, you'll understand uh, what executives do. And what the institutional investors have asked the energy companies to do is decapitalize, uh, which is to say do share buybacks uh, and do dividends. In other words, in effect, cannibalize themselves. And roughly 80% of the issuers that we look at, the public issuers that we look at in the oil and gas business are doing precisely that. They're decapitalizing. They're returning unsustainable amounts of capital to shareholders. And while the share prices of those companies seems to do fairly well, generating yield in a yield-starved world, we don't, as investors, regard that as um, sustainable. So we're choosing to invest our own money in companies that strike a decent balance between uh, rewarding investors for their patience at a trying time and continuing to grow the business. And mercifully, there's a fairly long list of companies uh, that meet that criterion. Mercifully, too, they're fairly unpopular with investors. <laughs> Uh, even in the oil and gas sector, they're unpopular? Yeah. Or? yeah. I, I mean, it's odd. Yeah, really. uh, many of the oil and gas analysts believe they get paid for the quarter. And so they try and figure out what stock's going to do the best in the quarter. That isn't really how oil industry investment works. You have to invest for the five or six year time frame. You have to look at total return over time. And so a, a lot of Wall Street analysts look at stocks that have momentum. And they look for the cause of momentum, which is to say increasing dividend yields, and they buy stocks even though that dividend yield is transitory. The people who have made money uh, in the oil business over time and some of the tourists, uh, which is to say the generalist investors who are now coming into the oil business, I'm going to say as an example, Warren Buffett, uh, are, are looking at more sustainable yields. Uh, certainly his big investment, Occidental Petroleum, is one that is uh, investing fairly aggressively in terms of sustaining capital investment. Mr. Buffett seems to understand the conjunction of deep value, share buybacks, dividends, uh, and sustaining capital investments in uh, drilling opportunities that have extraordinary current yields. You, you said that ExxonMobil was – were doing things contrary to what President Biden asked them to do. But could I, could I ask you to be more specific? Because when he was running, President Biden said no more oil, never. But now that the price of, you know, of, of natural gas is so expensive, now he's calling these companies greedy. So which, which President Biden is Exxon uh, uh, agreeing uh, – following through? Well, what he's asking them to do is to make the investments to increase production, which is precisely what they're, what they're right. doing. But the suggestion that the reason for high oil prices is Exxon's reticence to invest is silly. No oil company has been allowed to build a new refinery in the United States in 35 years. But demand for gasoline has increased substantially. What that means is we have a shortage of refining capacity in the United States, which means that refining margins are very, very, very high. If Mr. Biden wanted to see gasoline prices lower, 
he could help the oil industry permit a new refinery or at the very least help permit debottlenecking of existing refineries. Uh, similarly, uh, when he continues to suggest, even at the time when he's looking for relief in bump prices, uh, that the oil industry is a sunset industry, uh, that it's not going to be around in 2035. What he's saying is that anything that you invest now that has a legacy asset value in 13 years is going to disappear. He needs to acknowledge that the year of peak oil demand is probably 2040, 2045. I mean, he needs to acknowledge fact. Finally, uh, he suggests that oil industry profits are the cause of high pump prices. In most of the country, the pump price, that is to say the percentage of oil industry profits as uh, as a factor in the total price of gasoline is around seven cents a gallon uh, against a $5 pump price, which is to say that the oil industry profit margin relative to the retail price of gasoline is seven cents out of 500 cents in a gallon of gas. Conversely, the cost of government sales taxes, <laughs> excise taxes, that type of thing, in the average gallon of gas sold in the United States is $1.24. So if Mr. Biden is making an ugly case about the seven cents, why wouldn't he talk about the $1.24 that is the government take relative to the seven cents that is the industry take? You and I both know the answer to this. Mr. Biden doesn't care too much about the pump price, except as it impacts his ability to get reelected. So on the one hand, he has to sing the green tune, which is popular with donors like the Tides Foundation and the Hewlett Foundation. Uh, and he has to sing a, a green tune, too, that's popular with left coast voters uh, and east coast voters, uh, the so-called green voters. Uh, while at the same time, he needs to pretend to be a friend to the consumer and taxpayer. Uh, this is an impossible job. What everybody listening to this yes. interview needs to know is that he's not trying to do it. He's just trying to get reelected. Yes, I think that the uh, green platform is is a lot less popular than it was when oil was negative. Let's put it that way. And let's let's move across the pond, Rick, to to talk about some politicians who really have a lot uh, of, of, of stuff to clean up, which would be the Green Party in Germany, which up until very recently was campaigning that the only green energy in the world is uh, uh, wind and solar. Nuclear is too dirty. Uh, now, because of the, the energy crisis is so bad, they have to turn to coal. Did you ever think you would see a day when the green politicians would welcome coal? I Germany? absolutely did, as a matter of fact. Um, what the Germans were doing six years ago, five years ago, seven years ago was unsustainable. It, it was very obvious to me at that point in time that Germany would have what is, from my point of view, uh, an amusing comeuppance. It's important to note, too, that because there's a fair bit of domestic coal production in Germany, that coal use in Germany wasn't phased out too quickly. Uh, the left voters in particular still have some origins in a trade union past uh, and had to pay attention to rural employment in the coal industry. Nonetheless, when uh, Angela Merkel 
decided that her country's energy future would be solar. Uh, I publicly commented at the time, relying on solar in a place where the sun doesn't shine in the northern hemisphere is a very interesting strategy from my point of view. And by the way, what do you do at night uh, when the sun doesn't shine anywhere? The German response to the Fukushima nuclear disaster is, as you suggest, to shut down important parts of their nuclear fleet. Now, what actually happened is while the total market share of nuclear in Germany fell, the Germans were forced to uh, import increasing amounts of baseload power from France, where it was generated by nuclear, <laughs> uh, which I thought was fairly funny. And of course, they <clears throat> greatly increased their reliance on other fossil fuels, which admittedly generate less carbon, uh, which is to say oil and gas from Russia. Uh, but put them in a position where when that supply chain began to be threatened, uh, began to face their problems. It is also true, and it has been true for the last five years, that Germany has been the savior of the Appalachian Basin coal industry in the United States. As the United States began to shut down its own uh, thermal coal generating capacity in the eastern half of the U.S., uh, increasing amounts of our uh, brown coal, our low-quality, uh, dirty, <laughs> sulfurous, ash-laden coal has been shipped through the port of Baltimore to Germany. <laughs> the irony of, the right irony now, of because, this, of course, abuses yeah. me. Do you think that after you know the sort of lesson that the West has learned of you know how dependent Europe was on Russian natural gas, do you think there will be a focus going forward on more domestic production of natural gas and also do you you know there was a time when I, I knew the numbers I forget them now but there's a huge in terms of a billion cubic feet per day huge hole that Europe needs to fill and they're going to get 10 from the US they're going to get 10 from Qatar you know 30 billion is going to be filled uh, via solar what do you think the energy and situation is going to be like in Europe when the winter comes uh, next next year I think it'll be really challenging for them. I mean, I really do think it's going to be challenging. It'll be interesting to see the policy response. Uh, it will be interesting to see how quickly, as an example, they can buy uh, LNG uh, receiving infrastructure. It'll be interesting, too. Uh, the European political establishment is still opposing uh, natural gas development in Africa, It'll be interesting to see whether the Europeans change their tune on Mozambique gas, uh, Tanzanian gas, Mauritanian gas. Uh, it, it would make perfect sense to utilize existing transportation links between, as an example, Algeria and Libya and Italy uh, to bring uh, greater quantities of African gas through conventional means into Europe. It will be interesting, too, whether the Europeans uh, will allow uh, the Turks uh, to complete a gas pipeline from Turkmenistan and our, uh, Azerbaijan through Turkey uh, uh, into Europe that would bypass Russian production and distribution networks. As I say, it'll be really interesting to see to what extent the reality of energy shortages this winter cause the European voter 
to focus the European political establishment's mind on viable energy. And I'm not smart enough to predict the outcome. Uh, I've sadly not understand, not understood the ethos of politicians for most of my life. And how quickly can production be turned on? Let's take Occidental Petroleum, uh, owned and uh, invested in by Warren Buffett. He bought a lot more recently, actually. I, I believe that uh, Occidental has vast, vast reserves in the Permian Basin that are undeveloped. So how long, if, if, per, if the Occidental uh, board wanted to create production and they were just, you know, they, they, were f- they had fervor, they needed to get it done, how soon before a brownfield just, you know, patch of dirt would become a producing well? Months. Now, make no mistake, we need more than Occidental. Uh, there are other good guys in the fight, by the way. Devon Energy is you know, doing a good job uh, in going back, taking the consumer at his or her word that they want more energy, uh, finishing off the drilled uncompleted wells, drilling new wells, upgrading infrastructure. That work is being done. But you know, it takes more than Exxon, Devon, Devon. Uh, and Occidental. It, it takes a political willingness. Uh, it, it takes an administration that says to the insurance industry, you will again provide reasonable uh, plugging and abandonment sureties. <laughs> it takes uh, uh, the politi- political willingness to do things like uh, complete the Keystone gas pipe, Keystone uh, oil pipeline from Canada, which could bring 600,000 marginal barrels a day into the U.S. market. Until the political signs suggest that the oil industry will be allowed to earn a reasonable return on capital employed, you're going to see a reticence to employ capital. But make no mistake, if you turn the industry loose, uh, at least for the next decade, uh, they can really, really, really impact supply. A bigger question is going to be the emerging, uh, uh, the ability of emerging markets to uh, develop uh, and produce oil and gas. As an example, the South American nation Guyana uh, in the offshore Guyana field has uh, something like 8 billion barrels of recoverable uh, reserves already discovered, lots of exploration upside. Will the big thinkers in the world uh, say to the Shells and the Totals and the Exxons, we forgive you, Uh, please, please bring that energy to market? I don't know if they'll do it. I don't know if they'll do it. But the the truth is that the the cure has already been found. Uh, It needs to be allowed. I, I also wonder to what degree both the Russians and the West will do uh, more pretend economic war, which is to say, despite the fact that lots of people are getting killed in the Ukraine, uh, right now, Russian gas is still flowing. And right now, the West, including, ironically, the Ukrainians, are still paying them for it. (laughs) I'm shaking my head in wonderment, uh, not because it's funny particularly, but because it's hard to understand. Yeah. Rick, I I think... uh We've really laid the macro groundwork and sort of the framework for understanding resources. Now I want to turn specifically to the investment uh, world and talk about stocks uh, and particular opportunities. But before we do, can you tell us about uh, the Natural Resource Symposium that that you have coming up? 
Well, thank you for the opportunity to do that. Uh, the Natural Resources Investment Symposium is something that I and various partners have put on for 30 years now. It was known for many years as the Vancouver Natural Resources Investment Symposium when I put it on in conjunction with uh, Agora Publishing. Uh, and we did that for 27 years. Uh, COVID caused us to stop the live conference in Vancouver. And we put it on for two years virtually, which was a great experience. We were able to increase our audience to 34 countries around the world, which is wonderful. But our core audience told us they wanted us to go live again. And the customer's always right. Because COVID is still a public health issue in two countries, we've moved the conference this year from Vancouver to Boca Raton, Florida. But we're going back live. The conference, uh, and I'm sure you'll have a link to it, uh, here in the video. The conference is between uh, July 26th and July 29th in Boca Raton, Florida. I think there's a few things that people considering the conference need to know. The first is that the conference has succeeded for 30 years by having some of the best big picture thinkers in the world. The Bill Bonners, the Jim Rickarts, the David Stockmans, the Doug Casey's, the Daniela DiMartino Booths, the Nomi Prins. These are great macro thinkers, but of a type which you would never see on CNBC or even read in the Wall Street Journal. They come from a different point of view, one that's more resource-centric and less mainstream. But in addition, I think, to framing the big picture better than other conferences have done, we've had world-class natural resource analysts who can tell you once you have your worldview shaped, how do you make money and how do you avoid risk? For 30 years, we've had a program called The Living Legends, where we've had natural resource entrepreneurs who have built multi-billion dollar companies describe the process to our attendees, showing them how the lessons that they learned building these multi-billion dollar companies made them better investors, and discussing very openly the successes and failures that other investors have had uh, in natural resource investing. I think that's probably the most single valuable feature of the conference, frankly. The fourth thing, Jack, is that in almost every investment conference I know, the exhibitors are treated as advertisers. Our attendees have told us that our exhibitors are content. In other words, they look at them as investment opportunities. What that means is that while at most conferences, the qualification to be an exhibitor is merely a check that cashes. Uh, at our conference, uh, we have to own the exhibitor in accounts that we manage. It doesn't mean, sadly, that every stock I ever bought went up. What it does mean is that every exhibitor there has been vetted. We understand them well enough that we've invested in them. The most salient point about all this is that like every other investment education product I've offered in the last 30 years, it comes with a 100% money-back guarantee. If you come to the Natural Resources Investment Symposium, either physically in Boca Raton or online, the virtual version, and you don't think that you got your money's worth, email me and I'll give you your money back. 100% ironclad, uh, no reservation, money back guarantee. Wow. I didn't know that. Well, that sounds really exciting. Rick, thanks for telling us about that. I have to say, you know, you said earlier that there are a lot of sort of pikers in the space. I don't think you use that word in the natural resource space who have opinions, but you know, there are a few few professionals who have 
done this for a career because it's it's kind of uh, I like sort of like you know being a short seller where if you've you've been in this business for a long time it's it's a credit um, and it, you know you are one of those people Rick you are a, a true professional uh, having invested in invested with a lot of uh, other investors in natural resources so uh, everyone. Watching it should definitely click on the link in the description. Uh, it helps the show, helps me, helps forward guidance. So, uh, thanks for telling us uh, about that, Rick. So now let's let's move on to the in- investment world. So I guess uh, let, let's let's take take what you said, which is what are some you know you've had a lot of successful investments in the natural resource space. I want to hear about those too. But you know the times that you have not had successes. What have you learned from them and what uh, was some sort of practice that you did that you said, you know what, I'm never going to do this again? I think overstaying my welcome uh, has been one mistake, which is to say it's a contrarian business. And I've been pretty good about buying what other people weren't buying. I haven't been as good at selling what other people began buying, uh, which is to say that I have often – Forgotten that markets work. Um, And I would say that's been my most common mistake. My second most common mistake has been to do too much. Um, Particularly when times are good, the clients have asked me to find more and more opportunities for them. And there is a scarcity of good opportunities. There are times in the market when the right thing to do is nothing, absolutely nothing. And doing nothing is hard, particularly when thousands of people are relying on you for their retirements. <laughs> but I, you know, I look particularly in the, in the speculative parts of my portfolio, Jack, where people are more important than assets. Uh, I have been, I've had the good fortune to be very close to probably two dozen serially successful natural resource entrepreneurs. And what you learn is that a very few people generate most of the success in the investment business. And to be honest with you, had I confined myself to investing with people who I had already been successful with by the time I was age 35 and never investing with one more newcomer ever after that, uh, I would have made twice as much money and I would have worked a quarter as hard. Uh, Which is interesting. You know, it really truly is interesting. Uh, I've done a few things right too. Uh, One thing that I have done right is I've always been more of an arithmetically oriented than a narrative oriented investor. So while most people were overcome with fears of uranium because it hadn't uh, performed, I looked at a commodity that was necessary for the ascent of humankind that cost $60 a pound fully loaded to produce, including cost of capital, and was selling for 20. Uh, I looked at one uh, at a commodity where either the price had to go up or the lights had to go out. I didn't care about the narrative. I just knew that people wanted to stay warm and have the lights go on. So uranium was fairly obvious to me. Similarly, two years ago, when COVID took the oil price down to sub-zero, or for months at between 20 and $30 a barrel, it was very clear to me that the oil price had to go to 60. It had to go to 60. Greta Thornburg notwithstanding, uh, it had to go to 60. So I've been pretty good about that. And I've been pretty good too at understanding that money is made by compounding. Uh, that isn't just one thing that has to go right. That one thing has to lead to another thing, which has to lead to a third thing. 
And if you have a time frame expectation around your investments that's unrealistic, your expectations are unrealistic. Well, many investors have trauma holding stock over a long weekend. Uh, I would say that my average successful holding period is between five and six years and sometimes much longer, uh, much, much longer. So I think I've done things right and I've done things wrong. Uh, having been on earth now 69 years and being involved as an active investor for 49 of those 69 years, I'm getting better at segregating what I do well with what I do poorly. Uh, and one consequence of that is that when I was younger, when I enjoyed success in my 20s, I came to believe wrongly that the success that I enjoyed in certain facets of investing translated over into other industries. In other words, I entered areas where I didn't have a durable competitive advantage. Uh, I learned that I wasn't that smart. Uh, and so in retirement now in particular, I confine my investments to natural resources and conventional financial services, which I understand well. I'm not interested in you know, media stocks. I'm not interested in retail. I'm not interested in crypto. I'm not interested in anything that I don't understand intimately and where I don't have a variety of contacts who can help me understand those things that I uh, don't know. Uh, one of the things I see in the resource space now is a, a real true plethora of opportunity. Uh, I see impending supply shortages, albeit with that huge caveat about a recession, at the same time that I see declining share prices, which is to say the price of admission to an increasingly attractive opportunity is going lower. And interestingly, it's going lower across the whole value chain. Uh, I cut my teeth and became well-known in smaller micro-cap speculative stocks. And I've been priced out of that market for three and a half years. In other words, I've been priced out of the market that I do the best at. But now those stocks are collapsing in price. Uh, and so the specialty that I cut my teeth in, uh, which is private, private placement transactions in debt and equity among junior resource stocks, uh, has suddenly lost its favor, which means to me it's suddenly become much more attractive. So I'm looking forward to a circumstance where the next 12 to 18 months is going to be very, very rewarding for me, rewarding psychologically because I do what I like to do. And, and rewarding financially, too, because the price of admission to an increasingly attractive industry is going down. Yes. W would you say the, that the odds of someone succeeding as an individual investor investing in small cap gold stocks or SPACs or media stocks or something that's sort of idiosyncratic, would you say that the odds that uh, of them uh, being successful are slim if they, if they don't truly love it? I mean, absent luck, I'd say they're nil. Um, people, people misconstrue <laughs> what stocks are. You know, they sort of act as though they're ticks on a computer screen. They represent fractional ownership in businesses. And if you don't have enough expertise to understand at least something about what the business is worth and might come to be worth in a certain circumstances of, you know, probable occurrences, you have no business owning the stock. That's precisely why, despite the fact that I have a lot of generalist experience in credit, uh, in income statements, in balance sheets, in redundant asset analysis, all the stuff that generalist investors do, 
uh, it's one of the reasons why I pretty much confine myself to the natural resource and conventional financial services ghettos. Uh, I've learned that despite the fact that I have good generalist education and instinct, I do better confining myself to areas where I can outcompete my competition. And what would you say, Rick, has made you more money over the years? Knowing where the price of gold is going to go, knowing where the price of oil is going to go, i.e. macro analysis, or gold company A is much better than gold company B. Oil company A is much better than oil company B. Focusing on the firm has been much more yeah. important for me. Now, it's important for your listeners to note that a lot of my history was an exploration where uh, finding something of value was more important than the price that it might obtain. Uh, I'm lucky enough to have been part of a couple of dozen uh, tier one discoveries where the price of the commodity became much less important than the fact that a series of drill holes answered some unanswered questions and the prize for getting a yes answer was a multi-billion dollar discovery. <laughs> But I would suggest that you need to be able to do both. Uh, I would suggest that you need to be able to compile a shopping list utilizing your expertise. And then you have have the discipline to exercise your check writing skills when other investors are on strike. <laughs> and you probably need a third discipline, which is to say when the market turns in your favor and the world suddenly believes that you're smart, uh, rather than taking that to heart, you need to begin to sell off your portfolio. Yeah, I want to ask you about right now, you said to the extent that you've made mistakes, it's been overstaying your welcome. And uh, you, that, that, when you said that, that made sense to me because you have a long bias and successful investors have a long bias. Like if you're a successful credit investor, you, you like to be long. Warren Buffett likes to be long stocks. So that makes sense. But what would you say are signs that you see that you are overstaying your welcome? Uh, some might look at the current environment where we have an explosive, uh, so I, I would say spectacular uh, price appreciation in the underlying commodities as well as in the stocks that that produce them. And over the past few weeks, they've sort of, you know, crash would be a dramatic word, but you, you know, some stocks are, are down, you know, have been cut in half over the past few weeks. So what, uh, what is a sign that you're overstaying your welcome? And why are you not, what are you not seeing now that makes you think, oh, no, this, this commodity bull market is the way to go? Well, one of the examples, one of the examples would be the, the junior uranium stocks. <clears throat> Three years ago, they were effectively free. Uh, and any public forum that would allow me, I'd pound the pulpit on them. Uh, possibly because I talk too much, uh, but the uranium price helped too. These stocks went from being free to being stupidly expensive. Uh, and the consequence of that was that I sold at one point in time approximately 80% of my junior uranium portfolio. I thought the price of uranium had to go to 60, but the stocks were acting like the price had already gone to 70. Uh, and, and the consequence of that is you try in your own mind to construct an admittedly imperfect model of what a company might be worth in various pricing scenarios. And if the, if the market capitalization of the company exceeds what you think it might be worth at a commodity price that they haven't achieved yet, uh, you need to sell some stock. I had the wonderful uh, circumstance of being able to sell a quarter of my portfolio and recoup the cost that I'd, expend, that I'd spent in purchasing the whole portfolio. And the share prices went up some more. 
So I said, well, I guess recouping my capital isn't sweet enough. I guess I need to take some money off the table, which I did. And then the prices went up some more. <laughs> now, a person who had, doesn't have an opinion as to value that just looks at momentum would probably be a buyer in that circumstance. Uh, but if you're like me, if you're a credit analyst, if you're a contrarian-oriented investor, there are circumstances where the prices so far exceed the values that you have to be a seller, which I've done. Now the price of the uranium juniors on average has fallen by 50%. Uh, if you, I think there's 75 uranium juniors worldwide. Uh, I assume that there are only 12 of those which are buyable. So I would say, first of all, that there are 60-something companies that I wouldn't buy at any price. Uh, I, I just, you know, I just wouldn't buy them. Uh, but I in... Why is that? Is it, is it, you don't think that they, that they're statements are, are necessarily accurate or, or what what is it? I just I just don't think that there's a probability that they will generate any economic utility. The share prices might go up, but that's different. The share price is a floating abstraction. Uh, there are 12 uranium juniors out there that I think at $70 uranium, which I now think is probable, uh, that I think have reasonable possibilities and in some cases probabilities of delivering shareholder value. Uh, and so I have a list uh, of 12 companies that in the right set of circumstances I'd like to buy. Uh, I monitor the company for companies for any changes in their condition that might cause me to raise or lower my expectation of their value three years from now and five years from now. And then I try to rank them in terms of relative attractiveness, A, and B, what I'm trying to cause to occur in various parts of my portfolio. And I'm looking again to increase my shareholdings in the, in the junior uranium sector, even while they're falling off fairly hard. Mm. Earlier, you mentioned Devon Energy, and I could be mistaken, but I think you mentioned it in the context of a company that actually is expanding production. That's uh, interesting to me because I've actually, I think I've heard Jim Cramer uh, on CNBC mention Devon Energy as an example of one of those capital discipline type companies. So uh, would, you, would you say that it's, it's accurate that they are expanding production? If you look back at Devon over the last three years, there wasn't sufficient incentive in the U.S. natural gas markets for them to drill. But they built up a huge inventory of drilled uncompleted wells to, to save leases and prove development drilling locations. Now that there is uh, increasing domestic demand for natural gas, ironically, now that there's increasing Mexican demand for U.S. gas <laughs> uh, and increasing demand for LNG, now that Devon sees the structure of the domestic natural gas market improving, they're going back in terms of aggressive sustaining and project capital investments. Uh, they didn't invest through the full cycle the way that Exxon did uh, or to a lesser degree uh, than Occidental did. But now they are aggressively exploiting their inventory. They're making so much margin that they are able both to exercise what Mr. Kramer would call financial discipline, uh, and in certain cases, certain cases I would call cannibalism. Uh, they're doing that while simultaneously investing enough of their free cash flow to at least maintain and in some circumstances expand their current production. And make no mistake, they have a wonderful, wonderful inventory 
of undrilled natural gas locations? I, I don't know exactly where it is, but you know, U.S. natural gas is somewhere around uh, six bucks, having come down from nine bucks. The European equivalent is yeah. huge. It's something like thirty bucks. So if I were in the natural gas business, and you know, obviously I'm not, so this is, might be a silly question, I would say, hey. I'm going to ship some of my natural gas over to Europe and solve that huge delta between European and U.S. natural gas. How come more people aren't doing that? And, and you know, have you ever seen a spread this wide between European and American uh, nat gas? Uh, the only percentage spread I've, I've ever seen this high has been between U.S. gas and Japanese gas when they shut down their nuclear fleet and they had to go from nuclear power generation to – uh, to LNG. The spreads were that wide, albeit from a lower U.S. base. But no, I've never seen spreads like this. It's important to note that a uh, LNG receiving facility or an LNG shipment facility takes billions to build, years to, you know, years to permit and build. So the longer the circumstance goes on, uh, the more likely it is that the infrastructure will exist to participate in the arbitrage between European gas uh, and American gas. It'll be interesting, too, to see if this prompts the Europeans to drill more of their own gas. You know, Germany has some spectacular sedimentary basins in northern Germany that are tight. Uh, northern Germany would probably be a wonderful place to look for un unconventional gas that you had to frack. Uh, it will be interesting to see if the fuel bills that you describe will be sufficient to cause the Germans to go after their own gas uh, as opposed to importing ours. Rick, could you tell me a little bit more about some companies that you're excited about? Uh, you, you mentioned Devon, but, but what are some others and why? Well, it, it depends on what part of my portfolio uh, I, I'm looking for. Uh, I'm of an age where I don't actually need to make a whole bunch more money, but I like making money. <laughs> so, in the speculative part of my portfolio, I look for tier one managements, tier one deposits in a micro cap wrapper. And I look for something where an existing discovery or discoveries <clears throat> takes care of the valuations three years from now and five years from now. So, one example in terms of speculation would be Africa Oil, one of the Lundin Group companies operating in Africa. They made a discovery, God, almost 15 years ago now in Kenya, which remains undeveloped uh, because of low energy prices during part of the time and because of Byzant the Byzantine nature of Kenyan politics. They cruised on from that at the bottom of the oil market to buy the big Brazilian company Petrobras's Nigerian offshore assets. And to say that they bought it understates it. They stole it. Uh, and at the same time, hedged out the production so that the COVID-related sell-off didn't impact them. Uh, I believe that based on the Nigerian producing assets alone, that the company is selling at half its net present value. But Nigeria has a whole bunch of exploration upside that wasn't exploited by Petrobras because they use the Nigerian uh, assets as a piggy bank. They cash starved them. At the same time in the last two years, uh, Africa Oil has participated in two major frontier discoveries, one offshore Namibia, reputed to be 3 billion barrels of oil, 
and another uh, offshore natural gas in South Africa. So I look at something like Africa Oil. They're fantastic people, the Lundin family. The CEO there, Keith Hill, I've known for 30 years. He's a superior human being. I think it's selling at half the value of the Nigerian assets without any upside attributed to the Kenyan assets uh, or the exploration upside uh, in Nigeria. And I think it discounts completely uh, the participation in successful exploration in two world-class deposits. Uh, yes, there are risks. I mean, South Africa is a harsh place to exist, to invest. Namibia is a good place, but most people can't spell it, so they don't like investing in places they can't spell. Nigeria has been a very, very, very difficult place to be a foreign investor. Uh, and the political reality in Kenya is such that politics has gotten in the way of opening up a billion barrel field. So yes, there are risks, but when I juxtapose the risks against the insane rewards, that's pretty attractive. So that would be uh, you know, one example uh, of something that I find uh, fairly attractive. In a different part of my portfolio, I believe that the gold price is going higher. I believe that the winds are in gold sales. That would be another whole interview to tell you why. But I want to increase my position in gold. And one of the things that gold does in my portfolio is it performs, among other things, an insurance company, which means that unlike Africa oil, which is high risk, I want some low risk gold. To me, the lowest risk gold is Franco Nevada, the royalty company, uh, very high quality assets, very long reserve life, very low management expense. Uh, it's simply the highest quality gold company in the world. And I like the fact that it isn't cheap, but I think it's reasonably priced relative to their margins, relative to their produ production growth, relative to their assets. So that's, a, that's appealing. Uh, that's appealing to me. Uh, you know, I could go on and on and on and talk my book, but it's, it's all getting... Um, more attractive. Thank you for that. What about some oil and natural gas companies that are maybe uh, slightly larger cap, definitely not the majors, um, something like Southwestern uh, uh, Energy or Chenier, I guess Chenier is very big, or, or Baytex or any of the other Canadian ones? Uh, I continue to have a basket of Canadian names in my portfolio because the Canadian companies are less expensive by similar metrics than their American counterparts. They're more expensive because the political risk is even higher. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter that Mr. Biden, well, it does matter, but Mr. Biden is anti-Canadian oil, but Mr. Trudeau is also. Uh, and the consequence of that is that Canadian companies are irrationally cheap relative to their assets. Uh, <clears throat> I like higher quality, but smaller names there. Names like Freehold, uh, names like ARC, which I think is the best run mid-cap oil and gas company in the world. Uh, names like Tourmaline. I continue to like the gas-rich Canadian names, Tourmaline being one of them. Uh, but, you know, Peto uh, and Birchcliffe probably being more important. I'm less attracted to them than I was a year and a half ago, where I just said, you know, the sort of six-stock six portfolio is a no-brainer. Uh, a portfolio that's up 150% in a year and a half is no longer mm -hmm. a no-brainer. 
but the price action in the oils in the last week is attractive. Yes. Uh, it might become a no-brainer again. And I would suggest to those of your listeners who don't have oil stocks in their portfolio, that even after the whole oil complex is repriced better than any other sector in the economy, that there's room left. The uh, public opinion with regards to oil is so low that they are treating it unbelievably low multiples to cash flow. I mean, I do believe that markets work. I do believe that a business like the oil business that has 50% operating margins at the field level is ripe for a decline in price. But it isn't ripe for a de decline in price while the industry as a whole is still, is still deferring a billion dollars a day <laughs> in sustaining capital investments. If we solve the problem with Russia and the Ukraine in the near term and the threat of a cutoff of Russian oil and gas to Europe uh, is solved, I think that you'll see the oil price go very quickly to $60. But I don't think it'll stay there. <laughs> Yes. Well, that's exactly what happened in 2008, right? It, the oil price collapsed, but it, you know, by 2009, it was higher. So, you know, I, I think it really depends on what kind of investor you are. If my basket of oil stocks in the near term from here by, fell by 50%, I wouldn't be happy about it, but it certainly wouldn't be the first time in my career that a basket of stocks that I owned for the five-year term fell by 50% in the near term. Mercifully, I can tell you that uh, after not having invested correctly in my 20s, uh, ever since then, when I've had a conviction in a sector and I've been wrong in terms of time, I bought more and it's worked for me. Is there any sector, it sounds like it's not oil, natural gas, but is there any sector where you are thinking of, uh, you are, you, know, you, you are, you have a overstayed your welcome and you want to ring the register, maybe in those more uh, economic sensitive areas like iron and copper, or if not, then perhaps others? I, I've already rung the bell on iron. Uh, I'm gone. Uh, that's probably a mistake. You know, uh, it really probably is a mistake. <laughs> but when I look at iron, uh, I don't want to be involved in the wholly iron dependent names anymore. I think that I can get iron exposure reasonably enough by owning Valet. Uh, you know, which I also own for nickel and platinum, copper, cobalt, uh, names like BHP, uh, names like Rio. So my, I, I no longer own the Labrador irons, the Fortescues. I no longer own the, the focused iron producers because I'd rather get my own personal iron exposure uh, in multi-commodity companies that I think are misunderstood and cheap. Uh, as I told you, I rung the bell myself in the uranium, the junior uranium sector in a big way. Now, I must admit, I didn't exit uranium. Uh, I took the money from the uranium juniors and I bought our product, the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust, because I believed that the uranium price had to go up. And I didn't think the uranium was overvalued, although I believe the juniors to be uh, overvalued. I, uh, one thing I did, which for various reasons I regret, is when it looked like we were cascading to war, the cheapest resource stocks in the world were the Russian stocks. And I began a process of fairly aggressively buying the Russian stocks. Uh, two, cir two circumstances there. One is the moral circumstance. Do you want to be involved in an industry that's generating tax revenues for Mr. Putin? 
answer to that is probably no. I didn't understand that the world would be dumb enough to go to war. The different question, of course, is the political risk around sanctions. In other words, will my government continue for me to allow me to own those stocks? And will the Russians allow me to own those stocks? Uh, if I followed my own historical guidelines, I would open an account with Gazprom Bank in Moscow and I'd buy a bunch of Russian stocks. Partly for moral reasons and partly for practical reasons, I haven't done that yet. Uh, Rick, I also wanted to ask you about hedging. Hedging is typically seen as a thing that protects uh, producers from a, a collapse in the price of a commodity. But I've been going through some, some balance sheets of maybe you know a gas company, a coal company, and I'd expect them. To, I'm like, okay, I you know they, the EPS is this. Like I expect them to make six hundred million dollars this quarter or something like that. And they you know a lot of companies have billion dollar losses, capital B, uh, in their hedging costs because the price has gone up so much. Is that something that investors should be worried about? Uh, and also, should they not be worried about the, the price fall now because they, they know that they're fully hedged? Sort of what, uh, how do you, as a veteran investor in the space, think about hedging? What I, I, I understand hedging, and, and I've used hedging myself, uh, where, as an example, in the oil and gas producing side of my own portfolio, particularly where I've had a production credit facility, which is to say some debt. I'll throw on a hedge to make sure that the cash flow that I enjoy from the asset services the debt uh, and leaves me room left over for distributable capital. There's two schools of thought on hedging. Uh, one is that it reduces the optionality uh, in an investment. Uh, I understand that, but as I get older, I opt for safety. The uh, hidden part of hedging that people need to understand is that a lot of people aren't very good at it. <laughs> In a lot of circumstances, the cost of the hedge uh, overwhelms any expectation of net present value from benefit that you might get from it. Uh, as an example, I myself have tried to hedge my own equities portfolios by going short indexes and stuff like that. And I have to say, if I look back at my own hedging activities over 40 years, I probably would have been better off not conducting them, uh, which is to say that I wasn't good enough at hedging. I wasn't good enough hedging my equity portfolio that it was worth the effort that I put into it. I would have been better off concentrating on buying better stocks and holding them for the long term. You find some companies over time that have been fairly good hedgers. But when you look at that, you need to determine whether or not the team that put those historic hedges in place is still themselves in place. Uh, in other words, if you had a team in the Treasury at Freeport McMoran that did a good job hedging oil and gas and hedging copper, are those people still there? In other words, are the decisions made by the same group of people who made them in the past? And I'm still not smart enough in many cases to know that. So while I think it's an interesting topic, I think the amount of hedging that as an investor you are willing to tolerate uh, should vary uh, an awful lot uh, with the operating margins that the companies enjoy and the level of debt service that they're trying to protect through hedging. Companies with more debt service need to hedge more. Companies with higher production costs uh, that will have higher penalties for failure uh, if the commodity price goes down need to hedge more. The Franco-Nevadas of the world, uh, the Wheaton Precious of the world, even the Barracks of the world, uh, efficient producers, efficient low-cost producers 
with sound balance sheets have much less need of hedging. Thanks for that. Uh, Rick, as we approach a close, what – so we talked about microcap, midcap, and then what about the majors? What are the companies that uh, you're attracted to most, uh, let, let's just say, in the oil and natural gas space and, and why? Well, in the oil and gas space, although it, it, it's beginning to be, – it's begun to be recognized, Exxon uh, has been for two decades the best capital allocator in the oil space. Uh, and despite Mr. Biden's cynical comments to the contrary, they have continued to reinvest uh, in every aspect of their business. Uh, and so the very high returns they're generating for investors don't capitalize the ability that they'll have to generate cash five years from now. That really attracts me. Uh, among the, na- the majors, it seems to be to be head and shoulders above the competitors. But some of the competitors are pretty good too. Uh, I think that Chevron... Uh, uh, is a good company. Uh, and in the last three years has probably exhibited better returns than Exxon, although their development pipeline is probably not as good. Their refining and marketing uh, operations may be a bit better. I'm not finding value in the U- European super majors. I'm not finding value in Shell. I'm not finding value in BP. I'm finding statistical value in Total. Uh, And I like Total's exploration track record, but I don't like Total's return on capital employed, so I don't uh, own them. I think the emerging mini-major in Australia, Woodside, when you merge the Woodside assets with the BHP petroleum assets that were just merged into it, I think that has a lot of upside, Uh, a lot of upside. I'm very attracted to that. I'm very attracted to the uh, long-term potential of uh, the natural gas deposits on Australia's Northwest Shelf and their ability to serve uh, Asian markets, which will continue to be very good markets for LNG. Thank you, Rick. Uh, my fi- final question is, you know, it wouldn't be a Rick Rule interview if we didn't talk about gold at some point. You, so you said you're bullish on gold. I have to say, I wasn't surprised to hear that, you know, no, knowing you. Uh, what uh, what are sort of the catalysts that you, ex- you expect? Is it related to inflation? And then perhaps also, could you talk about how the a lot of gold mining companies have a huge increase in costs? They themselves are experiencing inflation, and you know perhaps why that's why you mentioned Franco Nevada, which is a royalty company. They actually are the cost. Um, so yeah, just what, what's your outlook on gold at, at this time? Gold does well during periods of time when people are concerned uh, about the maintenance of purchasing power in conventional assets, and anybody who isn't concerned about the purchasing power of their assets during a period of negative real interest rates needs their head examined. I mean, look at the arithmetic around the U.S. 10-year treasury. They pay you 3.4 in a currency that they suggest is depreciating at 9% a year. In other words, they are guaranteeing you a 5.5% loss. They're going to follow through on it, believe me. Uh, Can gold compete with return-free risk? Yes. When? I don't know. And to be honest with you, I don't care. Uh, I mean, I hope I actually never make money on my gold investments because the set of circumstances that makes gold do very well that makes everything else do very poorly. And I'm very happy with my life, thank you. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I think my gold investments are going to do extremely well because I think the world is increasingly politicized. Uh, I think that quantitative easing, if it were correctly described, would be called counterfeiting. 
And I think that negative real interest rates more than anything else in the world will cause investors to be concerned about the purchasing power of their savings and investments because it guarantees, guarantees a loss. Thank you, Rick. It's been a total pleasure having you on Forward Guidance. Uh, you're welcome back anytime. People who, uh, thank you so much for watching this. Uh, I'm sure you've had uh, as much fun as me. You've learned a lot. If you want to get more Rick Rule, you have to sign up uh, for the Natural Res uh, Resource Symposium. Again, there will be a link in the description, so make sure to click on that. Rick, thanks so much. Always a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. I look forward to a, a rematch. Yes. <laughs> There is something that you need to be doing right now, and that is reading the BlockWorks daily newsletter. For top market insights and the latest in crypto news, you have to subscribe to the BlockWorks daily newsletter, and you can do so by clicking on the link in the description to this video or by visiting blockworks.co forward slash newsletter.